Welcome to the Full Count Podcast. This is part one. I'm Jack Curry. I'm joined by David Cohn. We're here to talk about the book that we collaborated on called Full Count. So, David, I'm assuming you remember this because I told you I wanted to talk to you. And we met in the back of the press box at Yankee Stadium a few years ago. I explained what I thought this book could be and how I wanted to crawl inside your mind and really get inside the head of a pitcher and what you feel on the mound. And you gave me a quick yes, which I was very excited about. Why did you give a quick yes, and why did this appeal to you? Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously a lot of it has to do with our relationship going way back, and there's a trust factor there. And, and I think, I, you know, we'd had enough discussions about pitching that I knew that we would click and that uh, we could cover some, some pretty amazing ground, uh, not only historically speaking, but with, with respect to other pitchers in the game and some pitching theories that I, that I know that you were into. So uh, for me, it was the right place at the right time with the right guy, and uh, it just made sense. And some background, obviously. I've covered baseball for almost 30 years, probably known you for about 25 of those years. You're a five-time World Series champion. You're a Cy Young Award winner. You pitched for the Mets. You pitched for the Yankees, the Royals, the Blue Jays, the Red Sox. So I've had a lot of time to watch you pitch, but why don't we go back to where it all started in Kansas City. Nine-year-old David Cohn is desperate to be a pitcher, but mom and dad weren't so sure if they wanted you to go down that road at the beginning. Why was that, and how did you convince them you were so serious about it? I think, you know, if you go back to, uh, you know, my father was my first coach and my best coach. We cover that in the book, and uh, he was a fanatic. You know, he was uh, a great father because not only was he encouraging, but he was a coach. He was a good coach, and uh, he wanted to actually, he wanted me to bat left-handed and be like Ted Williams. He tried to name me Theodore after Ted Williams, which my mom Waited till he left the hospital room and switched it to David at the last minute, and I, I think my dad still kind of has some has some thoughts about that uh, all these years later. But nonetheless, I think he, they thought that uh, it was safer to be a hitter. That there was there was some injury risk with pitching. Even back then, they knew, and uh, I think they were a little bit worried about at a young age maybe trying to to throw too hard or throw too many curveballs or maybe hurt my arm. So uh, you know, I, I can only think that. That was probably a concern back then, but it, it was quickly overcome. Uh, I think they saw my desire to be in the middle of the mound, to be in the middle of the field on the mound. So uh, they gave in, and the rest is history. You talk in the book a lot about your relationship with your dad, and I don't want to give away too many secrets because we want people to buy the book. But one thing that I absolutely love was the whole less is more concept. And if you could explain that to us, what your father meant by that and how those words stayed with you throughout your career. Yeah, you know, I think he knew that um, at a young age, you know, and really any pitcher that's, that's going to go out there and pitch in a competition is going to try to throw the ball as hard as he can, or she, for that matter. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're trying to generate velocity, if you're trying to throw the baseball as hard as you can, you create tension in your arm. You, you tend to squeeze it. The grip becomes a little too tight, and you tend to uh, maybe lose control, you know, and sacrifice that for trying to throw as hard as you can. And I think he was trying to impart on me that that uh, finesse is important, that being able to throw strikes, to back off just a little bit, and and really, you know, garner your control, throw the ball where you're trying to throw it, and then maybe add from that point on. But uh, the art of less is more, back off a little bit, develop some finesse, develop your control first, and prove that you can throw strikes before you air it out, before you try to go maximum effort. We're going to dig into your Yankee career in a subsequent episode, but while we're talking about your dad, 
you come back from aneurysm surgery in 1996 and throw seven innings of no-hit baseball against the Oakland A's, one of the sidebars of that game is that who's sitting right in the stands that you connected with after every inning was your father. And you've talked about how that rarely happened because you don't always know where the family is sitting during a game or they might be a little higher up. How secure a feeling was that for you in 96 when you came back, all that pressure, not knowing how your arm was? And, oh, by the way, there's Dad. Yeah, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, me throwing the perfect game is probably the most emotional game. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to diminish that that uh, that feeling of a perfect game. But without a doubt, that game in Oakland was by far the most emotional game. Coming back from an aneurysm, I didn't know if I'd ever pitch again. As you said, uh, you know, most of the time, if you've ever been invited to a game by a ball player, you know the family section is kind of away a little bit, maybe in the second deck or behind home plate somewhere, and it's kind of hard to find the family section, much less make eye contact with, with either a wife or you know, a family member. And uh, that particular game in Oakland that day, the Oakland A's were great. They gave my dad a seat right in the first row, right above our dugout, in the middle of our dugout. So every time I walked to the dugout in between innings, I was walking right into my dad, and uh, we could make eye contact almost every inning. So just to share that moment with him, my first pitching coach, you know, the guy who taught me how to pitch, the guy who worked in the meat factory in the graveyard shift, the guy who, you know, that I was the best day of my life, that I could call him and say, Dad, I made enough money, you can retire, you don't have to work the graveyard shift anymore, all of that. All of those emotions came pouring through on, on, in that particular game, and uh, I think that's something we both really cherish. I was a reporter for the New York Times back then, and I interviewed your dad after the game. Joe Torre removes you after seven no-hit innings. Your dad's quote after the game was basically, if they had left it up to David, they would have needed a tractor trailer to move him off that mound. So that was a moment where Torrey had to get you out of that game. There was no way they could risk leaving you in that game. Well, you know, I understood what Joe Torrey's thinking was. You know, at, at 85 pitches with six outs to go, it would have been a stretch to get those remaining six outs. And, uh, you know, under a pitch count, they were trying to keep me around 100 pitches or so that particular day. I had only made two rehab starts after missing four months, you know, uh, prior. So... I understood it, but I was in shock the whole day. I just couldn't believe that not only was I pitching again and overcoming the, you know, the aneurysm, but that this was going on. There was a no-hitter taking place, and it was just surreal. The whole moment was surreal for me. And you know, when Tori was telling me he was taking me out of the game in the dugout, I, it almost didn't register. I was kind of in a daze, and you know, a lot of athletes call it being in the zone. I, I think I was just in a daze, to tell you the truth. And I really didn't understand what was going on. And uh, you know, uh, Joe just kind of made his point and, and told me what he was thinking and then walked away. So I, I didn't have a chance to really argue with him, but I was just dazed at that point and thankful, thankful that I was back and, and that I could still pitch. And then uh, also kind of stunned that, what do you mean? I can't, I can't go back out there and try to try to throw a no hitter. Let's return to Kansas city. I, I love the stories you tell about basically where your slider was born. It was first born in wiffle ball games with your brothers in the backyard. Can you enlighten us a little bit about how you learned the, the art of a slider by throwing a wiffle ball? Well, it's really true. I mean, the wiffle ball is so much easier to make move, and anybody who's played wiffle ball knows this. And, and we used to, to uh, sort of doctor the wiffle ball, too. Uh, a normal wiffle ball has holes in it, and if you hold the holes on either side, 
of, of where you're trying to throw it of your grip, then the ball moves in the opposite direction. So we'd actually take masking tape and tape up the wiffle ball a little bit so that we could manufacture movement even easier. And uh, that's kind of where it started. I learned how to tape up a wiffle ball. I learned how to put my fingers on it, how to twist my wrist, how to make the ball move. And it was much less taxing on your arm, obviously, because a wiffle ball is much lighter. But just just to see the movement that you can impart on a wiffle ball kind of uh, made me fall in love with how, how, to, how to make a ball move. I remember you telling me that your brother Chris would kind of bail out, and you're saying this is a plastic baseball. Imagine if you're throwing a real baseball at a hitter and you get some of that same movement. He's going to have that, that same idea. I've got to get out of the way of this. Absolutely. And you know, really, I carried that all the way up through as far as, you know, nowadays they call it a, a front door breaking ball. But start it right at the hitter. If you're a right-handed pitcher against a right-handed batter, if you can still start the baseball right at him, right at the hitter, and then break it over the inside corner. It's still a very effective pitch, and it still works to this day. I see it working a lot, and a lot of pitching coaches throughout my professional career uh, kind of frowned on that. Uh, they thought, you know, well, that's that's a dangerous pitch. It can be a home run pitch. If hitters start looking for it, then they can step in the bucket a little bit and maybe launch it and pull it and hit it out. And uh, I never believed that. I always thought if you can get a hitter to flinch just a little bit, that it's to your advantage. And, uh, you know, I used that really my whole career couple of names that you had for your backyard wiffle ball field are, are just terrific, and they were? <laughs> well, of course, you know, I mean, it was uh, the 1975 World Series was when I was 12 years old, so Louis Tion and the famous Carlton Fisk home run, you know, in the body language that he showed, uh, you know, to keep the ball fair, that was right in my wheelhouse, and the minute those games were over or the next day, it was Conway Park after Fenway Park, and I was Louis Tion, and... Uh, you know, that's that's a 12-year-old with an imagination. And, you know, I tried to pitch just like Louis Tion, all the mannerisms, the way he changed arm angles. He threw sidearm, sidearm sliders. And that was just something that, that I just thought was the coolest thing that I'd ever seen. And I tried to be just like him. And you had a Juan Marshall fixation as well. So there were times it was Condlestick Park. Yes, Condlestick Park. And, you know, my dad kind of turned me on to Juan Marshall. He was enamored with the style, the big high leg kick, uh, he had a funky style and, and really could put spin on the baseball, make it move, a dancing slider. So he was another one that uh, that you could just watch pitch and the style and the charisma of these guys uh, just really made an impression on, on a 12-year-old at that time. So, yeah, Condlestick Park was 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 uh, something uh, – sometimes at night it would be more Condlestick Park because my dad put a floodlight on the back of our house so we could play night games, and uh, that was a big day. You never played high school baseball because your high school didn't have a team. You played in the Ban Johnson Summer League. I always find it somewhat amusing that a guy like Paul O'Neill will say to you, Coney, you didn't play high school baseball, yet it didn't prevent you from being drafted in the third round by the Royals. Did you ever think that not playing high school baseball would hold you back, or you thought you would get enough by playing summer ball? Well, it held me back in terms of exposure. You know, I probably would have had, you know, a few more scholarship offers, maybe a little more leverage going into the draft and maybe a little more knowledge about where you fit in. Uh, when I was drafted, it was almost, uh, you know, a bit of a surprise that I went that high. Uh, you know, 74th pick of the nation, third round overall. Um, didn't really know what to expect. Um, you know, I played in a summer league, the Ban Johnson Summer League in Kansas City area that was a college league, 21 and under, so... 
when I was 15, I was playing against college kids. So just holding my own under the radar really helped me playing against older competition. So it, with the benefit of uh, hindsight, I think it probably helped me. I, I had less mileage on my arm. The competition that I did get was against older competition, and it really was challenging. So in some respects, I can make the argument that not playing high school baseball really helped me. If you're enjoying our podcast, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes. We're very interested in hearing your feedback, so don't forget to do that. And David, we're doing something special during each episode of this podcast. We're going to ask a trivia question. And if you get the trivia question right and you are first, you can win an autographed copy of Full Count. Here's the deal, though. You need to send your answer on Twitter to at YesNetwork, and you need to include the hashtag FullCountPodcast. I am giving you a layup for this first question. Name one of the chosen names that David Cohn had for his backyard wiffle ball field. He says it on the Yes Network telecast all the time. We just had it in this episode a couple of minutes ago, so that's a layup. So make sure you send your answer with the hashtag FullCountPodcast to at Yes Network on Twitter. Kevin Sullivan will sift through all those responses We'll find out who is first. And, David, I want to also go back to the idea of your competitiveness. You talked about growing up as the the youngest of four siblings and how that, that really guided you because you were trying to keep up with your, your older uh, siblings. I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, it was a real uh, advantage to be the youngest with two older brothers and an older sister that were all athletic. Uh, there was a seven-year spread between eldest and youngest. Uh, so, that, you know, we, we all were close enough to where I could bug them enough and chase them around. And that was motivation for me just to keep up because uh, a lot of times I wasn't allowed to play. You're too young. You're not ready. And that was a real motivating factor for, for, a, for a kid that uh, just wanted to be like his brothers and his sister and wanted to be part of the games. And, you know, I, I think probably a lot of... Uh, a lot of youngest in the family. A lot of a lot of kids have similar stories about just uh, having that older sibling to chase around and be like or want to be like. And uh, I, I was no different. Did you have a a light bulb moment in your teen years where you said maybe I can take this somewhere? Maybe I'm not just a good pitcher for a 15 year old. Maybe there's life in professional baseball for me. You know, the professional part, not as much, even though that was a dream. Every, every kid, I'm sure, dreams about, oh, could I, you know, for me, I was a Royals fan. Can I, can I ever make, you think I'd ever play for the Royals? You know, that was certainly a dream. But for me, it was more about, you know, maybe I can get a scholarship to college. You know, that was the first goal was, you know, I can be good enough to maybe go play somewhere, a Division One school, maybe, uh, you know, a Big 8 school. Back then it was a Big 8, you know, Missouri, Kansas, Iowa State, Nebraska. You know, one of those schools I thought maybe there's a chance. I, you know, I could either get a scholarship or get a chance to play Division One baseball. You had the chance to go to an open tryout at Royal Stadium. And as you've talked about in the book and you talk about on the S Network, you grew up as a Kansas City Royals fan. Suddenly you're in that ballpark. You know scouts are watching. You're not going to get a lot of pitches to throw what do you remember about that experience? Yeah, I remember, you know, having about 10 throws and throwing them as hard as I could and asking if I could throw some sliders. And they, they said, okay, go ahead and throw in a couple sliders and, uh, you know, not really knowing how well you did. Because if you've ever been to a tryout camp, you know it's, uh, it's an assembly line. You know, you just get your chance and there's 50 other kids in line waiting for their chance and 
positions, whether you're a position player or a pitcher, you're separated on the field, and it, it really is just kind of a factory type situation where you don't you don't really get any feedback, you don't know how well you did, and uh, you just kind of get through it and show what you can show in a very limited amount of time. So it's a very difficult thing to go through those tryout camps and make an impression. When the news comes that you are a third-round pick of the Royals, is it a blend of shock, excitement, nervousness? What was that experience like? It was incredible that it was not only that high, you know, a third-round pick um, for a kid that didn't play high school baseball, but it was also the hometown team. It was the Royals. So, you know, I was I played all three sports in, in high school, and I was scheduled to be a quarterback in an, in an all-star game. It was uh, Missouri versus Kansas uh, senior bowl, as they called it, uh, and, and I made the team as, as, a, as a quarterback. And uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, a week of practice, Got the draft right during that week. I had a bit of an ankle injury too, where it was I was probably going to play in the game, but it was you know it was kind of a game time decision because of my ankle injury. And then once the draft came, the scout who drafted me told me, "You might not want to play in that game, you know, because we're serious about signing you. And if you want to be a professional pitcher, then maybe you should make that choice now." So I bailed out of that game. I signed a contract that day, and um, within a week I was gone uh, and down to Florida and Sarasota to go to rookie ball and you know when the Royals spring training was in Sarasota Florida back then and your signing bonus was for 17-5 and you told your dad you were eager to sign because you didn't know if the Royals were allowed to maybe say hey we don't we picked you in the third round but we're going to move on to somebody else you wanted to get your name on that contract yeah I did and my you know my dad held out I think the first offer was like 15,000 and he got another 2,500 out of them and I was very nervous that that the deal would blow up somehow and I really had no clue on how these things worked and I was just very anxious to to start a career to say you know what I'm, I'm going to do this uh, there was a college scholarship program that was involved in the in the contract as well meaning that if i got hurt or if anything happened i could go back and and, and have some help or at least a a partial scholarship to, to to go back and go to college what did young david Cohn do with his signing bonus what did you think was a smart and and very rational thing to do with that signing yeah, bonus it was uh, a lesson that uh, everybody has to learn on their own i guess despite better advice from 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 parents or anybody that that you that is older that has experience but i had to have a new corp a new uh, z28 it was a camaro it was, it was uh, when they changed the body style back in the 80s you have to go way back and know your camaro history but it was a brand new body style on an iconic car and uh i had to have it and so somehow i went and made it happen and didn't realize the consequences on down the road of actually making car payments and insurance and maintenance and everything that goes with buying a new car. I just I just wanted that shiny new car. And you ended up having it for a short period of time and having to trade it in at a certain point because it just was not uh, real smart to, to be tooling around in that and having all those payments. Yeah, having all those payments and then also not you know not understanding that you had to pay taxes on that signing bonus too. So uh, a couple of years later, the IRS came calling and uh, my wages were garnished and I didn't understand what was going on. So it was a really hard life lesson learned uh, that the convergence of... Uh, you know, being a responsible adult and paying your taxes and understanding how to budget your money and, uh, you know, and, and everything that goes with it. I didn't even factor in housing costs in Charleston, South Carolina, a low A ball league. That was my first league that, you know, after the rookie ball league. So there were all sorts of things that I just had no clue about. And, and they all came converging together. And uh, 
you know, ended up in a car dealership in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, trading in a brand new Camaro. And I think I left with a 10-year-old Buick Regal. So I, I got in a series of trade downs instead of trade ups and lost thousands of dollars in the process and ended up with a rusty old Buick Regal uh, that I drove in low A ball. If that's not a life lesson, I don't know what is. David Cohn lost the Camaro, but now he's in the minor leagues, and we've got a lot more to talk about. On episode two of the Full Count Podcast, we're going to talk about David's experiences in the minor leagues. You won't want to miss it.